History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? To find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Hello, you're listening to History Happened Everywhere. I'm Pete Goddard, and I'm here with the ravishing, the rambunctious Ryan Weir. Hello, Pete. I just wanted to start by wishing you a very happy birthday. Thank you very much. So tell me, have you had uh, a birthday cake? Uh, We did have a birthday cake yesterday. Did it have candles on it? There were some candles. How did it fit so many candles on that cake? We had to aggregate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know when you're drawing the dates on a wall in prison and it's yeah. one, two, three, four and a bar across for number five. Right. We did it in groups of ten in this case. Okay. <laughs> one candle represented a full decade of life. <laughs> so question for you. When you when do you make the wish, your birthday wish? Is it when you blow the candles out or is it when you cut the cake? I believe it's whilst you're blowing the candles out. Okay. Now I believe you're also supposed to blow them out in one breath. Yeah. So no, I did make a wish. I can't tell you what it is though, because otherwise it won't come through. Do you get a wish per cake then? I think you get a wish per birthday cake. That's true, because if you were to have several parties and each party you had a cake, do you get to make another wish when you blow those candles? Well, I think I think the terms and conditions of wishes that apply in this case are that yes, you can have as many wishes as there are people suggesting you make a wish whilst blowing out candles on your birthday cake. I just feel like maybe there's a loophole here that, that no one's realised. Endless supply of <laughs> wishes. Well, if you wish for another cake <laughs> yeah. you quids in on it yeah isn't that the perfect gift for someone then a cake because you're giving them not only a cake which is delicious and cakey but you're also giving them a wish you don't even have to eat it though for the wish that's a good point you can just throw it away after you've blown the candles that feels in fact do you even need the cake can you just have candles? That's just blowing out candles. I don't think you get to make a wish every time you So it has to be connected to some An sort of cake. spongy... But does the candle have to touch a cake? Yes. Well, then what classifies as cake? Could it be a pastry? Uh, I think a pastry would be acceptable. So if I was to give you a pan of chocolat with a candle in it... Yes. ...you could still make a wish? Yes, absolutely. That feels cheaper than a cake. <laughs> You're driving down your cost per <laughs> wish here. So I can get more. <laughs> I want as many wishes as I can. Right. I don't think you could even have 100,000 wishes. You would run out after about 50. (laughs) Yeah. But then you could just stack them to the same wish. Do you think you can double down on your wishes? Well, how much more world peace can you have? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you could really wish it. So it's like mega peace. Yeah. Oh dear. Anyway, I actually, in reality, wished for an excellent podcast. Oh. So I'm hoping that this may come true in the very near future. But uh, in order to do that, obviously, we must remind ourselves, cast our brains back to the last episode mm-hmm. and see what's on the menu today. All right, let's, let's do it, shall let's we? go back. Okay, are you ready? Yes. Your country is... Ooh, yeah. Australia. Oh, nice. Going down under, my friend. Down under to the Antipodean place. Okay, which also means Going you to better the hope for something that's under. not super old. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, so your time is 1945 to present. So post-World War II. This is going to be a good episode. That's, that seems to have rich pickings. And the topic... Well, at, yeah, it depends on the topic, doesn't it? <laughs> well, yeah. Then. <laughs> okay, here we go. Topic is... Yeah. Easy come, easy go. Oh. So easy come, easy go in Australia during when? 1945 to present. Easy. Done. Right, so it is Australia time. Known colloquially as the Great Southern Land. The lucky country. The sunburnt country. The wide brown land. Down under. Oz. Straya. It's got loads of names. I'm wondering about the wide brown land. <laughs> yeah, that one struck me as particularly <laughs> odd as well. <laughs> but it is officially known as the Commonwealth of Australia. Ah. Yeah. Welcome to the world of kangaroos, of wombats, of crocodile dundee, of didgeridoos, tinnies, the outback, of shrimp on the barbie, vegemite, flaming galahs, airs rock, 
Nicole Kidman, Aussie Rules, Yowies, Bunyips and Drop Bears. Yowies, Bunyips and Drop Bears. Yeah. I feel we strayed from... <laughs> I, was, I was with you up until Nicole Kidman, I think, and then really we started right. to go off the path a little. It's all Australian stuff. <laughs> Australia is an independent country comprising the mainland of Australian continent. Uh, it's the smallest continent in the world, by the way. Uh, the island of Tasmania and a number of sort of smaller islands all the way around the main body. It's the sixth largest country in the world. Wow. It's 7.6 million square kilometres. That's 2.9 million square miles. It is 14 times larger than France. That's one of our... That's a cracker. That's really big. It's really big. It's almost the same size as mainland USA. Wow. Most of it is sort of the deserts in the centre of it. Uh, it has tropical rainforests in the northeast. It has mountain ranges in the southeast. And of course, it's surrounded by huge amounts of coastline. Four out of five Australians live less than 50 kilometres from the coastline. I suppose if it's all desert on the inside, then you probably would, wouldn't you? Population? of around 26 million people. Canberra is the capital. It means woman's cleavage in the uh, native language, and that's because the city is cradled between two mountains. So, again, I've got my image of the colonialist arriving yeah. and so, saying, what is this place? And someone going, boobs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we shall call this place <laughs> boobs. <Cleavage. laughs> uh, side note, Moomba, which is Australia's largest free festival, means up your bum. <laughs> in native language. <laughs> so, Moomba Pete. Ah, uh, indeed to you, my yeah. friend. <laughs> uh, Sydney, you'll obviously be aware of it. It's the largest city. A lot of people think that's the capital. It is not. Canberra is. Oz facts. Oh, excellent. A couple of Oz facts for you. The world's longest golf course is in Australia. It measures more than 850 miles long. Wow, what is it, just all in one long straight line? <laughs> just walking. <laughs> it is home to 21 of the world's 25 most venomous snakes. So if you're going to get bitten by a venomous snake, it's more than likely going to be in Australia. And last Oz fact for you is that uh, the, the humble wombat, it defecates square-shaped poos. Excellent. Square-shaped. Uh, to then use as building material or something? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't know why. Uh, I guess I have there must Oz, be a reason for it. I have an Oz fact for you. Tell me. Uh, it is physically impossible to be in the company of Australians for more than two hours without finding yourself accidentally doing the accent. Ah, yes. <laughs> this, this is going to prove a problem throughout this episode. <laughs> and uh, we should do the usual thing of apologising in advance for our terrible accents. Okay, so do you want to hear the national anthem? I absolutely do. Well, it's good because I was going to play it anyway. We're I know, I said. figured I couldn't. What do you think? I think it's a solid middle-of-the-road entry to the canon of anthems of our podcast so far. It's not rousing me, it's not annoying me. When I think of Australia, I think of something a bit more fun and lively. I thought I could add something a bit more upbeat. No, that was fine. Maybe we have a spin-off podcast of National Anthems Reviewed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, do you want to hear the National Anthem? Yeah. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I knew it! <laughs> everybody needs good this is much better. Just a friendly this is great. morning. Helps to make a better day. This would be a great national anthem. It's all about supporting each other. You're all neighbours, right? Need to Gold get medal to round your neck. Yeah. Everyone arm in arm at the end of the Next night. Next door is only a footstep away. So wholesome. <laughs> I love it. Neighbours. Everybody to neighbours. With a little understanding, we can be Okay, let's let's travel back in time, Pete. 
I can feel myself travelling. All right. 65,000 years ago, Pete, the first signs of human habitation. These are the ancestors of the modern-day indigenous Australians. They prefer the term the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. They are one of the oldest continual cultures on Earth. Wow. I suppose they found a good out-of-the-way spot and stuck with it. Absolutely, despite the snakes. <laughs> yeah, I guess they got used to them. The population grew, it's estimated, we don't know obviously for fact, but it's estimated to have grown to around about 750,000 people living in Australia around then. But that's a big place still, so that's not they're not living on top of each other, are they? No, they're not. Spread out uh, throughout, the, throughout the nation. Europeans. On some of the earliest maps, uh, the name Terra Australis appears, and it's the name for a hypothetical continent that people believed was in the Southern Hemisphere. The first Europeans do arrive, though, and those people were... Portuguese. You'd think so. No, it was not. It was the Dutch. (laughs) Dutch make landfall on the 26th of February, 1606. They travel the western and the northern coastline. The first guy was a guy called Abel Tasman. Tasman. Oh, 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 yes. Uh, And he names the place New Holland. They're really unimaginative sometimes, these people, aren't they? They were, yeah. Because would you look at Australia and go, looks like Holland to me. (laughs) New Holland? Yeah, well, it doesn't stick. Uh, And the Dutch don't settle. There are some that are shipwrecked, and there are a couple of Dutch that are marooned, sort of just left behind. And so I guess they settle. I guess I'm Australian (laughs) now. Yeah, exactly. Um, But the Dutch don't settle. So in 1688, so about 80 years later, the English arrive, and they're captained by... Cook. Wrong. William Dampier. Yeah. 1770 is when James Cook arrives and he maps the East Coast and he calls that area New South Wales. (laughs) (laughs) Because again, it reminded him of the rolling green hills of his Welsh homeland. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So about 13 years later, 1783, the British lose their American colonies over in America. And so they send their first fleet to Australia and they establish a penal colony there. 1788, the camp opens 26th of January. It's now known as Australia Day. Most convicts convicted for petty crimes, they are assigned as labourers. There are rebellions, uprisings take place, but these are generally suppressed over the years. 1803, you've got colonisation spreading right across the country now, uh, settlements being established all over the place. Five years later, 1808, there is a military coup known as the Rum Rebellion. 400 soldiers grab Governor William Bly, they shove him on board a ship, anchored off the coast of Hobart for about two years. 1817, the word Australia as a name is now starting to be used officially. And 1827, Britain claims the whole Australian continent. In 1850s, there is a series of gold rushes. Loads of prospectors from many countries across the world all rush into Australia looking to make their fortune. 1868 is the last of the transported convicts. And in 1869, we have the Aboriginal Protection Act, which sounds great, but it was used to separate children from their families, now known as the Stolen Generations. And official government estimates now say that in certain regions, between one in 10 and one in three Indigenous Australian children were forcibly taken from their families and communities between 1910 all the way up to 1970. But going back a little earlier, 1878 to 1880, you might have heard of the Kelly Gang. Yes, I have. Right? Led by notorious outlaw Ned Kelly. He terrorises the state of Victoria, robbing banks and holding people up. And uh, he was shot, he was arrested, put on trial, and he was hanged. And in typical Aussie laid-back fashion, his final words were, such is life. (laughs) It's a very sanguine approach, isn't it? All right, I guess that's that. (laughs) I guess that's that. And that is something that we will come back to because this is an episode where the theme or the topic is easy come, easy go. So we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that. In 1907, Australia and the self-governing British colonies are given the status of dominion within the British Empire. Um, Between 1918 to 1945, they take part in World War I, World War II. Uh, Post-World War II, Australia opens its doors to immigration from Europe and the country is basically transformed. Um, 18th of March, 1985, the residents of Ramsey Street in the town of Erinsborough take to our screen for the first time in the uh, TV soap opera Neighbours. 
And in 1992, the rights of indigenous people to traditional ownership of the land is finally recognised, pretty recently. Uh, 1999, a referendum is held to decide on whether or not Australia wants to become a republic with a president. It was rejected by 55% of the people and two-thirds of the parliament. That basically means you get the Queen on your banknotes, and it's not hugely more than that, I don't think. <laughs> and the flag on your flag. Yes, the Union Jack on your flag. Secret flag on this. <laughs> that's right. So that's kind of a very quick summary of the history of Australia. Well done, that's uh, right from the start. The first test of the atomic bomb in the New Mexico desert. The shattering overture to a new era in man's history. Awe-stricken scientists watched a column of smoke leap 40,000 feet into the stratosphere. For the future, the choice is peace or total destruction. The atomic age is here. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the Atomic Age. That is the time period that we're looking at. So 1945 to 2021. The Atomic Age describes the period of history following the detonation of the first nuclear weapon. And that basically just created a shift change in our culture. It's a phrase, the Atomic Age. It's coined by a journalist called William L. Lawrence. He was a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist with the New York Times. He was known as Atomic Bill. Uh, he was the only journalist to receive access to the US nuclear weapons activities. He witnessed all of the weapons tests and f was on the plane that f dropped the atomic bomb over Nagasaki. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he really did know his stuff. He went on to write loads of articles and books on the power of the weapons and the ethical implications for their use. The first bomb, known as the Gadget, detonated on July 16th, 1945 in New Mexico. So it's a kind of a confusing subject, atomic power. It's seen as both the epitome of progress and modernity, uh, you know, the nuclear dream, power stations across the world, fossil fuels were seen as being unnecessary in a world full of unlimited energy. The, the idea was that we would have an atomic future. Uh, we would transform the, the deserts and thaw the frozen poles and make the whole earth one smiling garden of Eden, in quotes. Um, in fact, one science writer, David Dates, uh, wrote that instead of filling the gas tank of your car two or three times a week, you will travel from a year on a pellet of atomic energy the size of a vitamin pill, which of course we all do now. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I've, I need to replace my pill actually well. coming up to a year's use out of it. <laughs> uh, Glenn T. Seaborg, chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, he wrote, uh, there will be nuclear powered earth to moon shuttles, nuclear powered artificial hearts, plutonium heated swimming pools for scuba divers and much more. But it was also seen as kind of terrifying and catastrophic at the same time, right? The power of it is huge. So about 140,000 people of Hiroshima's 350,000 population were killed. Uh, at least 74,000 died in Nagasaki. There has been Chernobyl. There is the nuclear arms race. Radioactive waste. What do we do with all this stuff once it's spent? Still, there is no viable way to permanently dispose of it. So really, it's just bury it. Uh, and even then, it's, it remains extremely dangerous and will be radioactive for tens of thousands of years. Also, the cost. Building just one nuclear power station can cost over 7 billion US dollars. So there's some sort of conflict between the pros and cons. It can really help transform our lives, but it can also be incredibly destructive. Uh, as of today, there are 440 nuclear reactors in the world. They provide 10% of global electricity. A quarter of those are going to be shut down by 2025 due to old age. After Fukushima in Japan, many nations have stopped entirely. In fact, Germany has said that they're not going to have any nuclear power stations by 2022. Um, America has only opened one new power plant in the past 20 years. Yet, nuclear is the second largest source of clean energy after hydropower. So anyway, a renaissance apparently is underway. I was looking up like what's the future beyond 2021, and there is a focus on, uh, on nuclear. Um, so fossil fuels are being phased out. There is an envisioned increase of nuclear power by around 59 to 106% by 2030. And the safety mechanisms for that have been done by sort of an evolution in the reactor design. So things have changed from the ones that we are perhaps more familiar with today. There are new technologies being proposed which make it cleaner, safer, 
more reliable. Yeah, I've spoken to a few people on matters environmental and there is a definite very significant school of thought that nuclear is a much more viable solution than the things we think of as renewables and in terms of wind and solar and all of that. Yeah. I'm still waiting for the time where we have that end of the back to the future scene where we just chuck our banana peels into <laughs> into a reactor banana peel power exactly and then off we go yeah i mean no one's getting any trouble from a banana peel right <laughs> yeah okay so then that brings us to the topic easy come easy go easy come easy go look down all around kiss and kiss and come how delicious easy come. Mm, so nutritious easy come. Easy come. say everywhere take it slow easy come easy go it's an expression. It means that something of value that has been gained without any real effort can be sort of abandoned or lost without any real regret. So I find a tenor in the street, it blows out of my hand in a gust of wind. Yeah, well, easy come, easy go. There you go. It's kind of relevant for Australia, I think, because this is a people and a culture which, whether it's true or not, are kind of known to uh, be somewhat laid back and have a relaxed attitude to life. Um, you know, a bloke or a Sheila who calls everyone mate, um, you know, says things like, no worries, mate, you know, she'll be right. You know, everything is going to be fine. It, it, it's it's a national stoicism that, that suggests everything is going to turn out all right in the end, you know, and because of that, there's no real point in worrying about it. Which for a nation with that many poisonous creatures is a remarkable outlook. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to talk to you today about three examples of easy come, easy go in Australia but before we do, I thought we could just have a little snack and a little drink to get us going. So just, I'm going to play some music and I'll come back in one second. All right. You got a light, buddy? Yeah, sure, kid. There you go. And your wallet. Nick, give him your wallet. What for? He's got a knife. <laughs> That's not a knife. That's a knife. Okay, so I'm back. Um, right, you have some things in front of you there, Pete. I do. Right, so first of all, let's start with the drink. So we've got three stories to tell, and in front of you, you might notice there are six bottles of beer. They are Victoria Bitter, which is the Australian beer, VB. That is a slab of Vic Stubbies, as they're known. A slab of Vic Stubbies? Yeah. A uh, Stubby being a small bottle, I take it. I, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> and a slab being... A little a pack. pack of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we'll have we'll have one of those per story. You you also have some snacks in front of you. You have a uh, a chocolate bar. Yes, this w is a dairy milk marble. Yeah, it's milk and white chocolate with some hazelnut praline center. It says here. Yeah. Then we've also got uh, another traditional Australian snack, which yeah. I thought might be fun. I'm nervous about this one, I'll be honest. Yeah, well, this one is called fairy bread. This is a lovely birthday party kind of treat. Oh, and given it's your birthday and, uh, you know, why not? Let's have a little treat. What you take is fresh white processed bread, <laughs> <laughs> the cheapest white bread you can get sliced. So feel free to do this right, while we're, we're doing, doing this now. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so you take, take a slice of that. Yep, this is the whitest of breads. Oh, okay. A bit of crust on that one. Hang on, let me get something a bit more. Yeah, no, you don't want crust. Middle piece. Definitely don't want crust. So okay. nice and soft and fresh. Okay, you also have some spreadable butter there. Yeah. So go ahead and apply liberally. Liberally. Edge to edge, as much spreadable butter as you can. Oh, my Lord. Okay. Be generous, it says here, and spread the butter right to the edges. Right to the edges. I am on my way to full Australianness. Okay, then you might notice there is a little jar of tiny candy beads known as hundreds and thousands. Hundreds and thousands. There's a whole jar of hundreds and thousands here. Okay, so now sprinkle those hundreds and thousands over the bread. Right. Sprinkly, sprinkly. I mean, it's a visual treat. So now what you need to do is cut them into triangles. Apparently that is important. That is a key, key element, Cut your it? bread slice into small triangles and serve. Small triangles coming up. So I'll post the recipe for fairy bread. It's relatively straightforward, I would say. <laughs> In the notes for this episode. Okay, should we try, should right, we try a piece try. of Have fairy a bread? triangle. Have a triangle, my friend. Thank you. All right, okay. Here. All right, here we go. Good on you, mate. <laughs> crunchy. It's very crunchy, isn't it? It's really got that buttery kick. It's very buttery and crunchy. It's not as sweet as I thought it would be. No, I think the sweetness follows on because I'm now just starting to get the sweet. Mm. It's um quite strong. 
you know, a, a triangle, one triangle is enough, I would say. <laughs> okay, let's get us a beer. Mm-hmm. Let's start with the first story, shall we? Right, here we go. VB. All right, well, happy birthday, mate. Good on ya. Cheers. It's cold. It's like a lager. A little it's, bit malty. It's called Victoria Bitter, but it's not a bitter. It's more of a lager. It is, isn't it? Uh, it's got a little fact on the lid, though. No way. Yeah. Really? Oh, that's cool. On I the inside. I wasn't aware of that. little hidden fact. little Easter egg. So this one's in very tiny writing. It says, true right. or false, Neighbours has over 1,000 more episodes than Home and Away. Uh, true. Flaming true. <laughs> is that what that is literally what it says. <laughs> okay. This one I don't quite get. Uh, the highest ODI score was 417. I don't know what an ODI score is. I don't either. Uh, I'm guessing cricket. Could be. Because it's Australia, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, made by Australia against Afghanistan in 2015. Wow. ODI. Oh, should we just ask the woman? Yeah, lady of the internet. All right. Uh, Sheila of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> what is the ODI score? G'day. This is the voice of the internet. An ODI is an initialism for one-day international cricket. A form of limited overs cricket. The game is played between two international teams, in which they both face a fixed number of overs, currently 50, with the game lasting up to nine hours. The Cricket World Cup is held every four years and plays this format. Cheers, mate. All right. Okay, yeah, that makes sense now. Okay, let's begin with story number one. The Castaway Millionaire. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm going to take you to the northeastern corner of Australia. It's in the state of Queensland. In the far north corner of Queensland is the Shire of Cook. Ooh, sounds idyllic. Yeah, and within the Shire of Cook is a remote coastal locality called Iron Range. That sounds less tempting. (laughs) Yeah, there is uh, just a few hundred metres off the coastline a small island called Malapiku Island or Restoration Island, made famous by the Captain Bly of the Mutiny of the Bounty, who landed on the island in 1789 after being marooned by the mutinous men on board his ship. Uh, He named it Restoration Island because the oysters and the native fruits that, uh, that he found there restored their spirits, so he said, and because they also landed on Oak Apple Day, uh, the anniversary of the restoration of King Charles II. I love that Bly, even after being cast adrift, and still has an eye to his monarchist beliefs. Today, because Restoration Island is a place of cultural significance to the traditional owners, the island is managed and maintained as a national park. Well, most of it is, because one third of the island is leased to a man called David Glasheen. Who's David Glasheen? David Glasheen. He started life uh, in the food industry. Uh, He quit and pursued a career in consulting, which brought him thousands of dollars a day. And he used that money to start a toy company with his brother. And they quickly built up a small fortune. In his private life, David falls in love. He gets married. He buys three properties. uh, He has several children. Life is going well. Then, one Tuesday in October 1987, David wakes up to find that all 23 major stock markets have crashed. Known as Black Tuesday, Australia is experiencing the worst decline of them all, a more than 40% drop. The global stock market tanks, it crashes, creating a worldwide loss of around about 2 trillion US dollars. Companies around the world just lost their value overnight. Everyone is just selling their shares. And within days, his toy company is worthless. David Glasheen is no longer a multi-millionaire. And not only that, but David loses everything else. His wife, his children leave him. He can't afford the repayments on his houses. So what does he do? He could go back to consulting, but that's when he meets a woman called Lindy. And they share a dream. And the dream is to just get away from everything. And so they formulate a plan. And that plan involves living on a deserted island. So they start looking at all the unoccupied islands around the coast of Australia, and they narrow in on Restoration Island. David, ever the entrepreneur, he convinces some investors to fund his proposal to build a resort on the island. And a clause of that proposal is that he and Lindy would live there too. He didn't really care if the tourists came or not, or whether it got the resort got built or not. He just wanted to live on the island, and this was his means to be able to do it. So anyway, the investors, David, Lindy, they all travel to the island. They survey it. They draw up plans for like a 16-bedroom resort. And while they're there, Dave and Lindy both fall in love with the island. Plans are drawn up, uh, including leasing the island, and planning permission is sought. 
Almost immediately, the plans are cancelled because there are complaints made by the people living on the surrounding islands. They're like, we don't want like a big resort on this on this island. And it has cultural significance to us. However, David Glasheen already has leased a third of the island, right? And so he and Lindy are like, well, we're still going, so bye. <laughs> and so they move onto the island and they move into an old World War II beach shack. And 22 years later, now aged, what, 77, late 70s, David's still there. Lindy left after a short while. It wasn't it wasn't for her after all. So David just gathers bananas and coconuts from the island. He catches crabs, fish and oysters. He has a fruit and vegetable garden. He brews his own beer and he uses that beer to barter with fishermen for crayfish and for prawns. Uh, once a year, he does like a huge supermarket shop on the mainland. So he uses those trawlermen to give him a ride to the city. Um, and he spends a week there shopping before hitching a ride back to the island. He has solar powered internet access. He has a cell phone and a small boat to travel sort of like that short distance, a few hundred meters to the mainland. And the only thing he says that he doesn't have is someone to share the island with. And in fact, he made international news with his romance search uh, with headlines like Robinson Crusoe searching for his woman Friday. Nice. Instead of his Man Friday. I see what they did there. It's clever, right? Yeah. But life is not all blissful. Uh, he has to be very wary on the island. There is a crocodile, which he has nicknamed Boxhead, uh, which appears on the island every now and then. It's a wounded crocodile who is bigger and a lot more aggressive than the others. And David is extremely careful around Boxhead, leaves him alone when he comes ashore. Well, yeah, I mean, I'd leave any crocodile, Boxhead or otherwise. <laughs> yeah, but Boxhead isn't the only visitor to the island. Uh, Russell Crowe has uh, appeared on the island and has met with with David. Uh, He stopped by whilst on his honeymoon. David Glasheen didn't recognise him. Obviously, he'd been on the island for so long, um, but he described him as a lovely man, a real nice fella. All right. So there you go. And so the ex-businessman, the ex-millionaire, now hermit stroke castaway, he finds himself living on the island free from the stresses of modern life and relying mostly on sort of mother nature around him. In an interview, he was asked what it was like losing his fortune, and he said, well, I survived physically, but mentally it was hard. Uh, I felt like a complete failure, even though the crash wasn't my fault. There was nothing I could have done to stop it, but I felt like a failure. In another interview, he was asked what his proudest achievement was, and he said, to be able to experience a little bit of heaven on earth on my own island. I'm the luckiest bloke in the world to live here, and money is immaterial. I am contented and happy, and in the modern day world, that's a precious thing. He says that when he dies, he plans to give the whole island back to the indigenous people. Wow. Easy come, easy go. Well done, David Glasheen. That's a, it's a tale of recovery, isn't it? <laughs> it's just a bit, yeah. It's yeah. A, but, but not a recovery of like, oh, now I'm going to get all my money back, but just I'm, I'm going to reboot this whole concept mm. <laughs> and go, actually, how do I measure success? Contentment. Contentment, absolutely. Yeah, finding peace. Did he find his partner in the end, or do we still not know about that? I understand he's still looking. Ah. So if you uh, are interested... Handsome young podcaster could uh, enter his life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it does sound quite amazing. Um, You know, there's plenty of documentaries that have been made about him. If you want to go on YouTube and just search for David Glasheen, you'll see images of him. He's quite the eccentric looking character. He's a big white beard. and I mean, he really does look like a modern day Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> yeah. He looks like a guy who has been stranded on a desert island. I suppose he hasn't got a lot to dress up for or shave <laughs> for, has he? No, no, not really. No. <laughs> right. Uh, the next beer. All right. All right. So here we go. All right. So we've got our, our little fact. Australia fact. Beer fact. This is an unexpected uh, addition to the game, yeah, wasn't it? No, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I'm loving it. All right, go for it. Okay, mine says, and it's in very tiny text. Yeah. Mitchell Starrow, or Stark, bowled a ball at 180, no, 160 kilometers an hour at the WACA in 2015. Fastest ever. Nice one. Uh, As of 2018, how many Aussies have won an NBA championship? Six. Are you kidding me? No, that's That's exactly the answer. No I mean, that was an amazing guess. You said it with such certainty as well. I was like... <laughs> it was a total guess. <laughs> <laughs> it was six. That's amazing. Well, I know a great deal about Australian basketball. I'm flummoxed. That was amazing. <laughs> six. You just said it outright. That was pure chance, I'm afraid. Amazing. There you oh, go. Oh, mate. All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. 
Okay, story number two. I want to tell you about another guy, this time a younger man, a man called Campbell Simpson. Campbell Simpson, name to conjure with. It is. So it's 2010, and a young man named Campbell Simpson is living in Melbourne. He's fresh out of university, he's living with his parents. Uh, But he scored himself a pretty cool job. He's working as a news journalist for Gizmodo Australia. If you know of uh, Gizmodo, it's an award-winning website. They cover design, technology, science, pop culture, that sort of stuff. He writes reviews in his job there, analysis on everything from gadgets and science, entertainment and gaming. It's a pretty cool job for a young man, right? Sounds like a great starter. I'd love to have had a job like that. Right? Among the stories that pass by his desk, of which there are many, um, is something that catches his eye. And it's a new and exciting thing called Bitcoin. (gasps) So what is Bitcoin? Well, he's reading about it and he discovers that Bitcoin is a type of money. It's uh, computer-generated money, uh, often described as a digital currency or cryptocurrency. It's like an online version of cash. You can use it to buy products and services. Now, that's not new. There are lots of things other than money which we consider to be valuable, like gold and diamonds and such like that. The Aztecs even used cocoa beans instead of actual coins. The point being that bitcoins are valuable because people are willing to exchange them for goods, services, and cash. Like a lump of gold or um, cocoa bean in your pocket. Uh, A bitcoin is a computer file which is stored in a digital wallet on a smartphone or a computer. And people send bitcoins uh, to each other between these wallets. Every transaction, that's recorded down and it's listed on a public list that anyone can see called the blockchain. And the blockchain makes it possible to sort of trace the history of those transactions as you go. It stops people from spending other coins they don't own or making copies of them or undoing any transactions that have been made. And it's that's the difference really between cryptocurrency and sort of traditional banking, which is that traditional money is sort of controlled by central banks. You don't get to see that, right? It's just all done in the background. So to keep and store dollars and pounds and euros and traditional currency, you have to open a bank account, which is fine. You know, most of us have those. But there are 1.7 billion adults in the world who can't open a bank account, right? Because they live in countries without banking services. They have no means to verify their identity because, you know, they're immigrants or whatever. Uh, Or they're subject to persecution by their government, uh, their ruling entity who say, no, you can't have one. And if you don't have a bank account, that means you can't get credit. You can't do business on any significant scale. And you're restricted to just using cash, which is becoming less and less common. People aren't doing that. They're using cards and, you know, other different technologies. Uh, And you can't use it online either. Right, so you're really restricted. So one in seven people in the world have almost zero options to improve their financial well-being. So cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin allow those people, often in sort of your, your underdeveloped countries, to leapfrog traditional technology and go straight to the modern tech. You know, two billion people are about to get satellite internet and cell phone access in the next sort of 10 years or so, and they aren't going to take the time to learn about antiquated banking when they could just move straight to more easier, safer and secure systems. It's like, you know, jumping from telephone lines to cell phones. Like, why would you do that if you don't have to? You could just jump straight to cell phones. Anyway, what it means is it puts the power of banking in the people's hands rather than in the hands of the banks or in the governments. And because of that, many people think that Bitcoin cryptocurrencies is the future of banking. Okay, so that's what Campbell Simpson is reading about. And he's getting himself, as a young man, he's excited. This is his potential future. So he reads about it, and as a journalist, you know, his interest is piqued. So uh, he decides that, you know what, I'm going to try and get a bit involved in this and understand a bit more about what this Bitcoin is. So he sets out to try and buy himself some Bitcoin. Problem is, it's not easy to get in 2010. Uh, There aren't many places online to do it. You have to really search for it. But eventually, he finds uh, a place, he finds this website um, where someone is selling Bitcoin. And so he buys around about 1,400 Bitcoin for about 25 Australian dollars. So not very much, just a tokenary amount just to sort of see what it's all about. He receives the Bitcoin. It's uh, essentially a text file, uh, which he then needs to keep safe, right? So he stores it in a cold storage wallet 
which is basically just his favorite hard drive, an external hard drive that plugs into his computer and you can store it on that. His, this is his favorite hard drive. It's got music and movies on it. He's got his writing on it, you know, his portfolio. Uh, he's got his university work on it, um, photos, family and friends. You know, it's his, it's his hard drive. He uses it for everything. It just keeps it safe and makes sure that if his laptop or computer goes kaput, uh, he's got it stored somewhere else. So it's safe. Anyway, around this time, Campbell decides that he's going to move in with his long-term girlfriend, and so he does that. He moves out of his parents' home and moves in with his girlfriend. But about a year or so later, the couple split up. Boo, shame. They were such a lovely couple. I know. I really like them. I mean, who do we have around for dinner now? I mean, who, do we, who do we blame? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Campbell is then forced to move back in with his parents, uh, which he does. But during that move, he decides he's going to use the opportunity to sort of clear out some of the stuff that uh, had sort of, you know, accumulated over the years as a tech journalist, right? So he's got USB cables and he's got like USB sticks and he's got 3D glasses and, you know, components for his computer and all this sort of stuff. And he's just throwing that in the trash. Now, during that clean out, he picks up that external hard drive with his stuff on him. And he looks at it and he thinks, you know what? A few years have passed. Time is not kind to technology. This drive is old. It, it kind of has an annoying click every time he plugs it in and, he, and it's whirring around the little, you know, the motor in is just like click, 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 click. So that's kind of annoying. I've got other, better, more portable hard drives, right? All the photos are stored elsewhere. The writing, that's online in Google or somewhere else. All the music I've now got on my desktop PC. I'm just going to throw the hard drive away. So he throws the hard drive away. A couple of months later, Campbell's sitting there and he remembers something. Something important to him. (laughs) There was something on that hard drive that he really, really wanted. Any idea what it might be? Might it be the Bitcoin wallet? it wasn't. It was a series of Clive Owen short films. (laughs) That he'd saved onto the hard drive because they were hard to find on the internet. And he was like, dang it, why did I throw that away? I really want to watch those movies again and I can't find them anywhere else. And from remembering that, (laughs) he also remembered the file with the Bitcoin. Now, out of curiosity, you know, he goes and he checks the price of Bitcoin. All right, it's been a couple of years. So he just has a little look. And sure enough, the price has skyrocketed since he bought it. All right. When he bought it at barely, a, you know, more than a cent for a Bitcoin, it's now around $2.50 per coin. So that $25 investment that he made is now worth $4,000. Amazing, right? And he's annoyed because he's like, well, I've just come back from a holiday. That $4,000 would have paid for that entire holiday. That's like, you know, that's so annoying and frustrating. Whatever, right? It's, it's not that big a deal, right? Easy come, easy, easy go, go. Right. Besides, he'd also just got a promotion. So, you know, it's fine. I'm now getting paid way more than what that $4,000 worth. So I just, you know, chalk it up as a, as a loss and that's the end of it. You know, Bitcoin's fun fad. It's done. It, good stories to tell over a beer, right? But Bitcoin didn't stop at $2.50 <laughs> a coin. It continued going up. In 2013, just a year later, the highest price for one coin was 1,242 per coin. Remember, he had 1,400 of these coins. In May 2017, it passed $2,000 per coin. In November 2017, so just a few months later, it passed $8,000 per coin. And a a month later, in December 2017, it passed $19,000 per coin. That's $26 million he would have had. And in April 2021, it hit $60,000 per coin. So by the end of 2021, some say that Bitcoin could reach 100,000 US dollars per coin or higher. Basically, that would make Campbell's missing Bitcoin worth $140 million. (laughs) So Campbell told his story in a post on Gizmodo. Um, his friends and some strangers got in touch and were like, hey, look, you know, maybe you can actually find that hard drive. So, you know, some were suggesting that they go and search the landfill for it. Um, you know, the, apparently landfills are often well-organized. Councils will have them coordinated by by time and date and location. So if you were to call the tip or the council and say, look, it was taken at this time from this area, they might be able to pinpoint more specifically where it is. Um, they were also suggesting that he essentially paid someone, like give them a quarter of the stake of it to go and just find that hard drive. But, you know, Campbell's a bit more realistic about the prospects. And so you know, he's he's sort of written it off. He says that his, you know, his exploration with digital currency is over. And I'll, and I'll end with a quote from him. When I remembered that I'd thrown away my Bitcoin stash, I was a little bit pissed off. But honestly, as far as I'm concerned, my stash of coin is gone. I've learned my lesson, whatever it is. I don't even especially want to find those Bitcoin. I'm really happy with my life at the moment. I don't need them. 
I'd like them, sure, but I don't need them. This isn't trying to get philosophical, you know, the real value was in the friends we made along the way or some <laughs> crap like that. But just to say that I've come to terms with losing those Bitcoin. That chapter of my life is over. Nice. Another good story of recovery, really, and uh, acknowledgement of the value. Because realistically, had he not thrown it away, he would have sold it at 4000 anyway. <laughs> he would have paid for that holiday and that would have been nice. And he'd still be saying the same story. If I hadn't sold the Bitcoin, <laughs> I would be a hundred millionaire yeah, by now. So yeah. I think losing it sort of did him a favour in a way. There you go. You never know, right? Well, what a terrific guy, though, to be that sanguine again about uh, such a... It's not even a loss, really, is it? It's $25 is what he lost. <laughs> he lost $25, but he could have had more. Yeah, and that's. I think that's the... F- that's the thing that makes people unhappy, that focus on what you could have had. Yeah. And that is, that way madness lies, really. You could have had this. Well, yeah, but you don't. So <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> okay, right. So that brings us to our third and final story. Well, can I freshen your beer, sir? Yeah, if you don't mind. Yeah, here we go. Third one. <laughs> Okay, my bottle top says, Australia hold the record for the highest and second highest scores in international soccer. Really? That's what it says. Doesn't say what they are, though. No. Okay. Reg Snowy Baker represented Australia in rugby, boxing, swimming, and diving. Wow. Snowy was a... Nice one, Snowy. Well done, Snowy. Here's to you, mate. Um, Okay, my third story is called The Rise and Fall of the Easy Beats. Ooh. How much of the act is music and how much of it is, well, your appearance? You know, hair and fancy clothes and uh, a good publicity agent and so on. The lot. The lot makes up uh, a good group. Do you think you could all be turned deaf and still... Uh, uh, no, and still no, 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 Okay, so, well, who or what are the Easy Beats? Well, the Easy Beats are an Australian rock band. Um, they formed in Sydney in late... 1964. They were Dick Diamond, Harry Vander, Snowy Fleet, George Young and Stevie Wright. Um, They are considered to be one of the most important rock acts in 1960s Australia, uh, enjoying the same level of success as the Beatles. Wow, the Australian Beatles. The Australian Beatles, that's right. They started by touring locally. They soon got an agent and they signed to EMI and success came super fast. Their first commercial success was She's So Fine and it reached number three on the Australian charts. Let's have a listen. That was, she's so fine. I enjoyed that. It sounded like someone trying to recreate a 60s sound. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So their concerts get that Beatlemania level of adoration from their fans, right? Which I could hear in the background of that other song. You can totally hear it. Yeah. And that is where instead of Beatlemania, they were dubbed Easy Fever. Easy Fever. Yeah. <laughs> they're looking at that. They've already got. Fever. <laughs> Oh, they already have beat in there. And like, be easy. No, okay. <laughs> Let's just not go down the, the beat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So in 1965, they released their first album, Easy, and uh, United Artists signed them up. 1966, it's all going so well, they record a farewell TV special and leave Australia for the UK. Ooh. Global success, right? They there don't want to be just Australian anymore. So they go to the UK, they go to Abbey Road, and they yeah. release the single, Friday on My Mind. Let's hear it. I'm hoping you're going to play it, because otherwise I've just said, let's hear it, and you're going to go, no, copyright reasons. <laughs> Monday morning feels so bad Everybody seems to nag me Coming Tuesday, I feel better I get the kinks vibe off this one. I like this. She is out of sight to me. 
little rockier. I like that. That, that. I preferred that to the first one, if I'm honest. Well, uh, yeah, you, you're not wrong. Uh, everyone else did as well. It was a hit. <laughs> it reached number six in the UK. Nice. Their first song in the UK hits number six. It was number one in Australia, and it was top 20 across Europe, Canada, and the United States. It was awarded a gold disc. Friday on my mind. It's a great song. I really like it. 1967, they follow up with Who'll Be The One? But it's a flop. Oh. So we're not even going to play it. It didn't even make the UK charts. Wow. Not even the top 100. And uh, yeah, and it only got to number 14 in Australia. But it's no problem because they've been asked to go and support the Rolling Stones on tour in Europe. That feels like a big, big opportunity. Big opportunity. So that's what they do. They go and do that. And they release their first album under United Artists, Good Friday. It's not a success. So they return to Australia and they do a tour there because that's where their main fans are. At the end of that tour, Snowy Fleet, the drummer, he quits. I feel like the, the drummer is often the most replaceable of all the band members. No one's going to go, those drums aren't the same as Snowy's, are they? <laughs> There's drummers out there really angry at you I right know, now. I know. Yeah. Sorry, drummers, feel free to complain to uh, <laughs> Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. All I can hear is angry drums. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the band return to the UK and uh, they shake things up. They record Heaven and Hell, a psychedelic pop song. Ooh. Let's hear a bit of that. <laughs> Is knowing that your face has gone red Discovering someone else in your bed Baby, baby This kind of love's bringing down this man You've got me going between like heaven and hell The ups and downs of you's got me so I stand up and yell Heaven and Hell, there, by the Easy Beats. You like that one? I enjoyed that. Yeah? It had, uh, as I was saying, it's uh, very much tracking the Beatles in the evolution of their sound, isn't it? <laughs> it did, yeah. No, no one liked that one. It was banned by the BBC and didn't even make the UK charts. Really? Yeah, banned because of the lyrics. Uh, in the US, it was retitled as just Heaven, because they didn't want to put the word hell in it, because that was what was upsetting people. And they replaced some of the lyrics. You might have heard in there, discovering someone else in your bed... They changed that for the American one to discovering that her love has gone dead. Right. That seems like not a bannable offence to me, but maybe I'm not a 1960s broadcasting guru. Right. Well, those were bannable offences. It was, was sufficient that uh, they were able to ban it. And even those changes in the States means that it still doesn't even chart. Wow. And that's a shame because I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think this is the thing. Time has, has been kind to the Easy Beats. Anyway, so the band go on tour in America and uh, they record another flop song. They return to London. They change things again. They go away from that psychedelic pop kind of thing because obviously that didn't work and they start recording more soft pop records like they did before. And it kind of works. Like a lot of their hardcore fans are like, why, why have you gone back to where you were? <laughs> and so they lose those guys as well. But in 1968, Hello, How Are You? gets to number 20 in the UK. The neon light shines on the cars and people rushing End of the night vibes there in a right. big way. <laughs> it's got a bit of a Hey Jude feel to it. But I'm digging it, man. I think it's great. Uh, yeah, so that gets to number 20 in the UK. So they record a second album, Vigil, and it's a flop. Um, <laughs> although one of the tracks, uh, a, a song called Good Times, playing on BBC Radio, 
And Paul McCartney, who's driving down the road through London in the traffic, and he hears the song, and so the anecdote goes, he calls up the BBC and he says, Hey, it's Paul McCartney. <laughs> I'm one of the Beatles. It's <laughs> um, pretty good. I'm, I'm buying just go it. With so it. Keep, keep going. Play it again, will you? And they did. And so they put it on repeat. Uh, just for Paul McCartney to listen to while he was driving in traffic. And uh, this is Good Times, and I think it's probably my favourite. And this is what I'm gonna do would not have sounded out of place in the the ordinary boys and the arctic monkeys you could have put them in there and they would have sounded quite similar i think right yeah that's uh, good absolutely. i enjoyed that a lot. Get, 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 get a cover done of that good times so there you go they release another track from from the album vigil uh, lay me down and die and it is their biggest flop yet it is slammed by the critics. They're really on a knife edge here, aren't they? They're like, this is one win, and this one didn't. And yeah. this one's gone okay, and this one hasn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, They so Lay Me Down and Die is their biggest flop yet, and it's slammed by critics, and it reaches only number 59 in Australia. Home territory, and it still doesn't do well there. Yeah, so two years after leaving Australia for their huge global fame and success, the band starts falling apart. There is the failure of the music. Drugs are starting to factor in the lifestyles of some of the band members. Uh, there is a desire for more creative independence, as often happens in bands. There is crippling debts, right? They're all investing money in tours and in releasing these albums and things, and they're not getting the money from the sales. And there's the distance from the family. Their family are in Australia and they're traveling around all the time. So, you know, it's, there's pressures mounting. So in 1969, they split with United Artists and they joined Polydor. They released St. Louis, the song. It's a flop. It fails to chart in the UK, only number 21 in Australia. So they end their relationship with their manager. They have a short European tour. And at the end of that, they have to reluctantly accept a five-week tour of Australia. So they have to go back. When they get there, they realize they're just playing tin pot venues. These aren't arenas anymore. These aren't the big the big stadium stuff that they were used to. And in November, uh, they make a television performance in New South Wales, uh, which is interrupted by a hostile audience and is cancelled after only 20 minutes. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. <laughs> the band break up with no official announcement. And so that was the end of the Easy Beats. You could say that fame for the Easy Beats was easy come, easy go. That was a tale that you you only hear in pop music, the sort of you either win or you lose, right? You don't hear about these people. They were just, yeah, no, yeah, no. Could have gone one way or the other. It could have, wouldn't yeah. have taken much just to tip them into, oh, yeah, I love the Easy Beats. I've always been a fan. Right? Into legendary status. Right, yeah. and certainly listening to the songs, there was nothing there that made you go, well, it wasn't very good, was it? It was, uh, it was good stuff. Good stuff. Now... I hesitate on this one because I was like, you know, they were famous for a while, right? Like, you know, so was it really easy come, easy go for the Easy Beats? And I, I felt a little bit, a little bit awkward about bringing this one to the table. But they are called the Easy Beats, which helps you. They are. And I do have another story about the Easy Beats. Ooh. So I know we said we only had three stories, but here's a fourth one. Okay, this one's called The Lost Documentary. Yeah. There's a heaven, there's a hell. And I think that pe when people listen to this song will get the right idea from they can see they can hear from themselves that there's a heaven and there's a hell and both parts of this song convey the right mood In 1967, Australia's national broadcaster, ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, they commission a TV documentary about Australia's favourite band. And they want it screened later that year in 1967. So they hire a young filmmaker, a guy called Peter Clifton, to document the group. So Clifton 
goes over to the UK, he meets with the band, and he's like, look, I want to focus on the writing and the recording of your next single, Heaven and Hell. So they start recording and they capture all sorts of footage. It's mixed with sort of fantasy sequences and interviews with the guys, that sort of thing. So Clifton finishes the shoot, he edits the film, and he calls it Between Heaven and Hell. Now we know that Heaven and Hell has had issues before, and sure enough, ABC take issue with the title. And they're like, hey, look, can we just change the title? And so Clifton comes back and he's like, fine, I'll name it after one of my favourite poems. So he names it Somewhere Between Heaven and Woolworths. (laughs) (laughs) So um, you can think of a more 60s sounding documentary (laughs) than Somewhere Between Heaven and Woolworths. But ABC didn't like that either, right? Oh, yeah, I can see why. (laughs) Yeah, well, they felt it was too close to the Woolworths company and therefore in breach of anti-advertisement. They're not allowed to advertise. They're they're just not allowed to advertise, yeah. And so ABC comes back and suggests that the film be retitled to Easy Come, Easy Go. (laughs) (laughs) So Clifton agrees and uh, he sends the colour negatives to Australia from the UK uh, to be processed into black and white because that's what they were using on the TV in those days. So they had the the colour footage, but then he sent the negatives to Australia to be processed into black and white for the TV. But during that processing in the lab, an accident occurs. Basically, two entire sequences of the film are entirely destroyed. That reduces the one-hour runtime of this film to about just under 30 minutes. ABC are not impressed. They're like, we've paid for an hour's documentary. We've, you know, we've only got like scraps of a documentary here, so they just cancel the entire project. So the documentary never gets aired. So what remains of the 30-minute black and white print? Well, that's still available, right? No, it goes missing. So they haven't got any of it now. Even the remaining bit goes missing. And according to Clifton, his partner and him, who were doing the um, you know, producing and editing, uh, a guy called Peter Ryan, they had, in quotes... Peter Ryan? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah I'm, I'm, do you know what? I didn't even notice that. Yeah, Peter Ryan, yeah. Um, they had thrown out all the film components while they were in London, and they've never been found. Oh, man. Now I really want to watch that. <laughs> well, 40 years later. It's September 2009. Author John Tate is researching a biography on Vander and Young, two of the Easy Beats, called Vander and Young. (laughs) He learned his lesson about titling for the ABC. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, His research partner, a guy called Mike Griffiths, discovers there's a rock film festival in San Francisco called Friday on My Mind, Beat Group and British Invasion on Film. And so he's investigating that. And as he gets further, he realised that the programme for the festival includes a screening of the Lost Easy Beats documentary. So he's like, what? So he gets in touch with the festival owners, like this uh, movie distributor called Oddball Film and Video. (laughs) (laughs) And they specialise in rare rock films, apparently. That's their thing. Anyway, he knows how valuable that film is, right? So Griffiths gets in contact with Peter Clifton, the film director, and Oddball about retrieving the the lost film, and they agree to, to hand it over. So the 16mm print, the original print, is returned to Clifton in Australia for restoration by the National Film and Sound Archive. How the film made it to the US in the first place still remains a mystery, by the way, other than someone nicked it and took it, (laughs) but it's besides the point. And Easy Come, Easy Go, the Easy Beats documentary was finally screened at the Sydney Film Festival in 2012 and at the St Kilda Film Festival. It was released on DVD in September 2015 and is now available to stream on Amazon Prime. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's a great story. Easy come, go. easy go. Easy come back. <laughs> easy come, easy go, easy come again. <laughs> oh, that was go. good stuff. And a happy ending. I like that. Yeah, I wanted to end on a, on a more positive note for the Easy Beats. <laughs> so do we know how the Easy Beats are doing today? We do. So Vanda and Young, after the band split up, they work together. And so they pay off their debts from the Easy Beats by writing and producing several hit songs, including, and uh, you might recognize recognize this one Love is in the air. no way that's Tell awesome <laughs> Love is in the air every sight and every sound Oh, that's great. Love is in the air, yeah. And they also worked uh, to write and produce the first six ACDC albums. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, they were uh, George Young's from the Easy Beats. His younger brothers were in the band. Oh, no. So they were in ACDC. Yeah, uh, Stevie Wright from the Easy Beats, he went into theatre 
And he, after after the Easy Beats broke up, he took the lead role in Jesus Christ Superstar and then had a short but somewhat successful solo singing career. Snowy Fleet, the drummer, uh, he became a successful builder in Perth and now runs a rehearsal studio. And Dick Diamond retired from performing after just a few years singing in local pubs. Right. Oh, well. So there you go. That is Easy Come, Easy Go in Australia during 1945 to present day. That was a terrific job, my friend. I've thoroughly enjoyed that. That was Easy Come, Easy Go. You gave me beers and a peculiar bread snack. Very bread, and, yeah. uh, We haven't eaten the, the chocolate bar. Oh, yeah, let's, let's have a little... Let's eat some chocolate Whilst bar. I congratulate you on your excellence. Should we do that while we dozlate? We should do that, yes. I will prepare the chocolate and you prepare the dozlation. All right, I'll, I'll switch it on now. Okay, I'm getting the marble, the marble chocolate. Oh, did you hear that noise? That doesn't sound normal, does it? It's uh, probably it's just preparing something excellent for me to research. Oh, that could be it. Yeah, could be the noise of excellence, <laughs> impending excellence. I do love this machine. It's it, when it works, it purrs beautifully. I know, and the brass is all polished up nicer. So yeah, been, like, you noticed that. Yeah, I, I did. got the brasso out. Yeah, gave it a good old rub. Good to see that, but uh, in I like future, rubbing if you the could knobs. not use Brasso and use Goddard's silver polish, that would be <laughs> yeah. much preferable <laughs> in terms of my your family fortune. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, here we go then. Um, so, Pete, can I have a little bit of chalk? Yes, you can. Um, Here's your little bit of chalk. Oh, it is marble effect. Right, it's good, isn't that. White on top, brown underneath. I'm going to that's it. Okay, so, oh, that's tasty. I love chalk. Oh, I mean, it's just chalk, right? Praline. That's good. Mm, that's tasty. Nice, tasty. nice one, Aussies. Yeah. Okay, so from Australia, <laughs> where do we go next? Okay, let's hit the button and find out what your country's going to be. Do it! Okay, and your country is Jordan. Oh, that's all right. Jordan, mm. yeah. Okay, <laughs> so let's find out what your time period is. This is going to be critical. <laughs> okay, ready? Mm-hmm. Oh, no. <laughs> It's the Paleogene. What? 42 million BC. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 42 million BC. 42 million BCE, yeah. Uh, Okay, well, I guess it all hinges on the topic, really, doesn't it? Well... Because if it's sport... (laughs) 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 42 million to what, though? No, it's just 42 million BCE. Oh, right. It's that, the Paleogene. Just that one year. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever the Paleogene was. Okay. <laughs> the topic is... Oh, my gosh. Okay. It's the early bird. Well, that's uh, acceptable, I think. Well, in the sense that it's vague enough for you to find anything and try and associate it with... early bird the period. <laughs> were there birds 42 million years ago? I don't know. I mean, dinosaurs were birds, right? I'm sure there's an Arcturopteryx or something that's out there. (laughs) Oh, this is going to be tough for you. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) All right, well, there you go. So, (laughs) the Dursleater has spoken. You are going to be talking to us about the early bird. The early bird. In Jordan. During the Paleogene period. Right. 42 42 million million years years ago. ago. (laughs) Good luck, Pete. Thanks, Ryan. I feel like I'm going to need it on this one. We look forward to hearing what you have to say. That is our show for this week. It really um, is. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about, if you're an uh, Easy Beats fan and you want to make your voice heard, do get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you guys. You can reach us on our social media or through the website, which is hhepodcast.com, or you can email us at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. You never know, you might end up featured on a future show. And one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's your recommendation that really helps bring the show to new listeners um and you know if you think of anybody else that would really like to listen to the show send them a quick message and just say hey listen to this also if you're on tiktok or instagram or facebook or twitter you can find us at hhe podcast and if you subscribe to any of those you'll get a little alert uh, that tells you when we've done one of our one minute animated hhe bites yeah and we'll be back again soon with the verdict where i will be graded hauled across the coals by the mighty judge Lord Dursley, um, who will take his time to uh, eviscerate me on all the facts that I've clearly got wrong. Although I have to say, I thought your pronunciation of nuclear has been impeccable throughout the episode. I've been practicing all week. (laughs) 
Uh, in the meantime, if you can't get enough, and who could blame you, have got the back catalogue of episodes, which you can find in, the, in your podcast app in YouTube, or you can come to hhepodcast.com, and they're all there. So a huge thanks to Ryan. You've been amazing. Thanks, Pete. And I guess that's it. All that's left to say is, you've been listening to... Happen everywhere.